So I'm going to read from Matthew 18. This is a parable that Jesus um, addresses the disciples with uh, when they ask him about the question of forgiveness. And we're going to talk about forgiveness tonight because that is kind of what makes, what gives any relationship the possibility of long-term richness. So Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times seven, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who has wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents is about 17 years of wages at this point. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is about a week's worth of wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we open your word, your Holy Spirit would attend to our hearts, that we would be softened, and that something more than rational discussion would happen here, but something spiritual would happen here. We would find ourselves moved by your kindness and your grace, and we would find ourselves longing to live differently, um, not out of guilt, not out of a desire to be a better person, but simply because we think you are good because you've been good to us. So be with us, dear God, in your name we pray. Amen. Forgiveness is the tool that sustains and enriches relationships if they are to last. Any relationship can be short-term. That's easy to relate to somebody for a while. But if relationships, and again, this extends to all relationships, friendships, parent-child relationships, roommates, um, but also dating and marriage and romantic relationships as well, that relationships have heat and friction, Right? And forgiveness is really, it really is the oil that makes it last, that gives it the capacity to have heat and friction over time and still continue to work. And so what I want to do tonight, it's a little bit different than what we normally do, is I kind of just want to go through a systematic defining and working out of what this thing, forgiveness, is. And to start, I want to define forgiveness, give us a simple definition, and then work through it as we work through this text and also other places in the Bible. Forgiveness is this. A commitment... Freely offered by the offended party to give up the right to execute justice or demand recompense from the offender. So it's a commitment freely offered by the offended party to give up the right to execute justice or demand recompense from the offender. And what we're talking about tonight is um, the Bible recognizes, especially in Proverbs and in other places, that there are a lot of small offenses that are easy to forgive. And, and, and we're good at that, 
and it's because they're small and that's okay. And, and in some sense, we're not talking about those tonight. That love covers over a multitude of evils. They're small and fractions all throughout the day we look over. But what we're talking about is we are talking about the things that happen in our friendships, in our relationships, that produce fractures, that produce discord, and that we need to work through. And we're going to define forgiveness. I'll give it one more time. A commitment freely offered by the offended party to give up your right to execute justice or demand recompense from the offender. And so what I want to do is I just want to walk through aspects of forgiveness, kind of walk through the entire process. And the first thing that we have to see, and this is what Matthew, when, uh, Jesus, when he starts to address his disciples, the first thing he says is this, is that an offense creates a debt. When we sin or someone sins against us, a debt is created. When Jesus has asked about forgiveness, he says, all right, for me to help you understand forgiveness, Peter, what I need you to first see is that an offense always generates a debt, that the offender is in debt. So he starts telling this story about the king. For you to understand forgiveness, it's like this. There is a king, and he is owed a great debt. You can't understand forgiveness unless this language and imagery and metaphor, this concept of debt is in there. And so a, a simple life illustration is this. When we moved to South Carolina, I've used this multiple times, which is very simple and personal. Our across-the-street neighbor backed over our mailbox the second day we were in South Carolina. And she just mangled the mailbox underneath her car. She was like late 80s, early 90s. And um, replacing the mailbox cost me $100 and a couple of hours of labor. Right? When she ran over our mailbox, a financial debt was incurred. It's a liability. It was a deficit. And that speaks simply in economic terms, but, uh, but interpersonal relationships, this same principle is at, uh, is at work. Namely, when you're wronged by somebody, you are actually robbed. To be wronged is to be robbed. When a roommate does something um, or lives in a way that upsets your patterns, right? They don't get your life. They, you, you feel the sense of outrage. What you're actually feeling is a deficit of respect, right? I'm accorded this much respect by simply the dignity of being a human. And when you act in this way, what, uh, what I feel like is you're not respecting me that way. What you actually feel is called a deficit of respect. And that's what your anger is over. The, what is road rage? Road rage is my car and myself have certain rights on the road, and when you abuse those rights, you've disrespected me, you've dishonored me. It's actually a deficit of honor and respect and dignity. Right? When a parent overbears a child. This, okay, I totally understand our parents now a little bit because I am a parent, because now I understand why parents are so frustrated with their children. Because when you dishonor a parent... The reason it's so upsetting to them is because we've created a deficit of honor. When my children dishonor me or disobey me, they've dishonored my office uh, of parent, right? When God is not given the honor that he's due, if he's the creator and if we're the creation and we ignore him or we disregard his design for creation, when we hear the law of God and instead decide we'd like to live a different way, and we defy his design, then we've created a deficit of honor, right? A deficit of respect that is actually right, rightly due to him if he's the God. 
So offense always creates a deficit or a debt. It's not simply financial. And in fact, most of the offenses we receive and are a part of uh, on both sides are not financial. Most often what they are is they're interpersonal and they have to do with things like dignity and honor and respect. And we're robbed of those things when someone sins against us. And we rob people of those things when we sin against them. And so what we do is we respond with all our different coping mechanisms, like shutting them out, talking about them to others, denigrating them in our own minds. And that's how we diminish their dignity, right? And we diminish their respect in response. And so if there's a breach in those things between two people, the relationships are strange. So first one, you see that an offense incurs a debt. And when that happens, the relationship fractures. That's the second point. When offense happens, a debt's incurred, and the two parties are no longer on equal footing. You can't relate to each other the same way anymore. There's no no longer equity in the relationship. In Matthew 18, the servant and the king are at odds. Right? They can't interact in a healthy way until the debt is resolved one way or the other. The debt will always be in between them. And we all experience this all the time. Like Again, the, the roommate's the easiest one because everybody tells everybody they love their roommates, but we all hate our roommates. Some roommates in here feel uncomfortable right now because it just revealed each other to them. But when your roommate upsets you, then they fail to meet the expectations and they fail to live the way that you think you should be accorded as their roommate. When a friend lies, when someone lies to you or lies about you or someone gossips about you, maybe, maybe someone just doesn't even hear you or maybe you're patronized. Right? You feel the deficit of respect, and it alters the way you relate to them. You can't relate to them the same way anymore. Right? It's come between you. And if you're not reconciled at some point, it smolders. The offense, it sits there, it sits in the ledger of your friendship, and your behavior changes. And you can choose to be cold, or you can choose to ignore them, you can choose to gossip, you can choose to cut them out, you can choose to bring the offense up over and over again. There are a thousand different ways our relational patterns are emotionally and socially altered. For the worse, right? When there's a fence between the two of you. You can't enjoy healthy relationship, right? Until something's done with the offense. Even small offenses can build up over time, right? Even the ones that maybe we are pretty good at forgiving because they don't seem to be too big, they can accumulate over time. Someone does the same thing over and over again. That's what Peter's asking about here. How many times must I forgive a brother? And Jesus is actually saying 70 times 7 being you should be able to continue to forgive them, right? But sometimes small offenses build up, and it's not a big deal for a while, but it becomes a big deal over a while. They chip away. Right? And your relationship changes. Some of you maybe have seen this firsthand in your own home between parents. Right? Where over decades of time, small offenses have built up and their marriage is now kind of, it's emotionally voided. It's it's two people who've managed to cohabitate well, but there's no longer really intimacy in their life. And of course, what also happens is this. Sometimes what happens is the victim, if you're the one who's sinned against... We become afraid to call sin, sin. Right? And that actually can affect the relationship. We're afraid to address someone on how they've injured us. And what we'll do sometimes is we'll say we've forgiven them when in fact we haven't. We just let the offense passively, aggressive, uh, passive-aggressively inform and shape our relationship with them. So that there's now a permanent barrier between us, but we paint that barrier with cordiality. Right? So we act cordial... 
Because if we act cordial on the outside, we can pretend that there's no longer a barrier there, but we know we're not relating to them on equal terms anymore. Right? And if we're honest, that cordiality is actually patronizing them, acting as if things are okay, because that's what you should do, when in fact they're not. Because it's, and, and, you, and we do that because it feels it's like it's undignified or it's petty, um, or, you know, or, or maybe so if you don't call it out, you can just claim the moral high ground in your head all the time, right, and in your heart. And so though we patronize people, and C.S. Lewis has a really interesting argument. He actually says patronizing people is probably the highest form of hatred. He says this, if you're willing to fight with people, you're actually being honest in the relationship. You're actually dignifying each other with truth. If you patronize people, you're not even dignifying them with truth. And, and he would say that the relationship's much further gone. So offense breaks down relationship. It's a debt that breaks down relationships. And it leads to the next point as we begin to talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness does not ignore that. Forgiveness does not ignore justice. Within the biblical understanding of forgiveness, justice is upheld. I think a lot of times we think, and, and if we don't fill out this definition, you might even think that forgiveness is to do away with justice, that a debt or a deficit or a dishonor has occurred, and if you're going to forgive, we think forgiving means that you pretend that the offense has never happened. You say that that offense was not an offense, right? And I know that there are times when we actually do say, hey, it's nothing, and we actually have forgiven them. I'm recognizing that. There are times when we say, oh, it's really nothing, and what we really truly mean is I have forgiven you. But there are also many times when we say it's nothing, and what's really going on is the relationship never recovers because what we're saying is we're not, or what's happening is this, is we're trying to say that injustice never occurred when in fact it did. Um, true forgiveness actually requires that you own this. I have been wronged. And it did hurt. True forgiveness requires that you say, I have been wronged and it did hurt. And in that way, justice is upheld by acknowledging that real pain occurred. True, vic- uh, true, true forgiveness requires that the victim actually admit their status as victim. And you're not holding up justice when you actually don't admit victimhood. Forgiveness acknowledges the offense. But we also find ourselves on the other side as well, right? We also find ourselves, all of us, as the offender, as the one who's sinned against others. And what we'd like to do also is we'd like to not actually deal with justice. What we'd like to do is we'd like to, we like excuses better than forgiveness. This is what we'd all like to do is... We want God and we want people to excuse us, which is to say, hey, you're not really responsible for this because there were extenuating circumstances. There are reasons for which we behave this way, and because those reasons exist, we're not actually responsible. Right? We actually, a lot of times, will want forgiveness to be a code word for excuses because being excused is so much more palatable than saying, I was wrong and I need to be forgiven. But the reality is, is that what's offered in forgiveness is forgiveness for the inexcusable. And there is greater relief and there is room for richer restoration when sin is owned and forgiven as opposed to explained and excused. If Elizabeth simply excused my behavior, if, I always, if she always permitted me to explain away the different ways that I sinned against her, 
and she said, I accept that excuse, I would actually continue to sin against her, right? If I own my sin and say, I sinned against you, will you forgive me? You know what happens when she forgives me? I move toward her. It begins to actually transform the way I relate to her. The question, it it actually will strengthen our marriage. Um, So then here's our question, though. If, If forgiveness upholds justice, but at the same time it's actually releasing the offender from their moral liability, from their just deserts, then how does forgiveness actually uphold justice? And this is the place, this is the beautiful place where Christianity always confronts the conservatives and the liberals. It's not, if you're reading the Bible, you shouldn't be comfortable in either camp. The conservative mindset is the justice mindset, right? That is the law, it is obey, and if you disobey, there's just punishment, Right? And the liberal mindset is love. Like, love covers over a multitude of evil. It is not about insisting people to obey. It's not about demanding recompense. It's not about that. It's just about love. And let's not be too hard. Right? And the Bible always confronts the liberals and the conservatives because the gospel is always both. It upholds justice and it upholds love. Because this is the next thing about forgiveness. Forgiveness is uh, offense, produces a debt. That debt breaks down the relationship. But forgiveness is going to uphold justice. So how does it deal with that debt and still uphold justice is this. Forgiveness fundamentally, and this is the key, is suffering. Forgiveness fundamentally is suffering. Because what forgiveness is, is it's actually the choice by the victim to accept the suffering in themselves. When the elderly woman ran over on a mailbox, justice was upheld, right? A hundred dollars was demanded to fix it, but I paid for it. So guess what? When she, quote unquote, sinned against me, I'm not really that upset about it. It cost me a hundred dollars. I had a hundred dollars less after she sinned against me. To release her from the demands of justice, guess who met justice? I did. As the victim. One of the words for forgiveness in the New Testament is this Greek word, aphiemi. And that word means to release from debt. It communicates that the forgiver actually releases the one that's forgiving them. Excuse me, that they're forgiving from a debt or required to compensate. In the parable, what it costs that the king lost money on this deal. The servant owed him 17 years of wages. When the king forgives him... The king loses. He has less money now than he did then. He had less assets after forgiving than he did before forgiving. He lost 17 years in wages. Forgiveness is the choice by the victim to absorb the suffering. When you begin, when you really begin to process that, you're beginning to feel how impossible, how difficult that really is. Forgiveness will always feel painful. To let the evil done to you instead of venting it out on the offender. To absorb it. To refuse to be passive aggressive about it. To refuse to let the offenses poison the relationship. To refuse to talk to refuse to refuse talk about it to others. To refuse to use the offense against them. To refuse to keep accounts in the ledger. Right? To keep score. To refuse to do all of that will be painful. It's tremendously painful. It takes work. 
and vigilance to absorb the offense. And it will feel like death. And you see, this actually answers the question of why can't God simply forgive people without any penalty being paid? Why did Jesus have to die? It's because suffering is the currency of forgiveness. Suffering is the currency of forgiveness. And our sin against God, a failure to live in constant gratitude and honor and worship of our Creator, it's far greater than our sin against each other, and thus the suffering required is far greater. And that's why Jesus' blood is a sufficient sacrifice. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's something much more. It's actually accepting injury done to you for the purpose of being reconciled to the person who did it. Forgiveness is suffering. Keller makes this statement and it leads us to the next point. Forgiveness is always about pain. It's always about pain. And you'll actually be in pain if you refuse to forgive, or you'll be in pain if you do forgive. You actually, once someone has done something to you, you will be in pain if you refuse to forgive, or you'll be in pain if you choose to forgive. And that, that, the question then before us is really this. What kind of pain will you choose? Because the way another pastor said it is this. Unforgiveness is the poison that you drink hoping someone else dies. Right? Unforgiveness is the poison you drink hoping someone else has died. You smolder, you gossip, your head swims in thoughts about them. Right? You fantasize, you, you destroy their reputation in your mind. You know what's happening? You're getting dehumanized, right? Your bitterness is eating you. It's consuming you. It's rotting you from the inside out. So the question really is, once you've been sent against this, what kind of pain will you choose? Will you choose the pain of unforgiving people, the kind of pain that feels like a drug but rots you as a human? Or will you choose the pain of forgiveness, which actually has the capacity to heal? And that leads to the next point. And that this about biblical forgiveness, the purpose of biblical forgiveness is not simply to release someone from justice. It's not simply to set the accounts right again. It's actually reconciliation. It's actually to be reconnected and restored within relationship. It's not simply an impersonal setting of accounts, setting them to right. The purpose is restored relationship. Jesus didn't come simply to die for our sins and then kind of set us on the way of like, all right, You're off the hook. Now go do what you want. It was actually God seeking to restore His people to Himself. The purpose of the cross is not simply to clear our record. It's to reconnect us with God for this purpose, for mutual enjoyment. The gospel is actually, the end goal is mutual enjoyment between God and His people. And and the gospel hasn't done its work until you get that. In the most famous parable that maybe you're familiar with, uh, it's the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And it's the story of the son that goes off and lives his life foolishly and comes back, and the father throws a party for him. And if, you, if you've read that story, you might realize it's actually the third parable in a series of three that all go together. And the, the first parable is about uh, a shepherd that loses a sheep, and he goes off and looks for the sheep. And when he brings it back, the focus of the parable and the climax of the barrel, parable is the celebration the shepherd has when, when he goes and gets the lost sheep and finds it. That's the first parable. The second one is about a woman who loses a coin, and she looks all over her house for the coin. And when she finds it, the The climax of the parable is the party she has when she finds her lost coin. 
the parable of the prodigal son is the son that goes off and lives foolishly. And when he comes back, the, son, the father runs out to greet him and then throws a party. The purpose in God forgiving us, the purpose of forgiveness as the Bible receives it, as the Bible defines it, is not simply clearing accounts. It's actually restored, enjoyable relationship. And that's why forgiveness is really the ministry of reconciliation. The goal of forgiveness is actually to stop the spread of sin that destroys relationship. Forgiveness is literally saying, that offense, that sin that's come to me, it stops in me. I absorb it. I will not let that sin continue to go out into the world. It's come into me in an injurious way and it stops here. I'll take this. And you've got to see that what Christianity is saying is that forgiveness is an act of love by the victim to their victimizer. This is why in the Bible when you read about forgiveness elsewhere all throughout the New Testament, this is why the offended party is the one who's called to seek reconciliation. Most often, Jesus and Paul call the offended party, the one who's been sinned against, to go out and seek the one that's sinned against them for reconciliation. Because forgiveness is an act by the one who's offended, an act of love for the one who offended you. And so Jesus in Matthew 18, at the verses earlier before this passage that kind of prompted Peter's question... He says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. He's actually saying, if someone sinned against you, the burden is on you to pursue them. For the purpose of regaining them. For reconnecting with them. Luke 17, he says, go rebuke your brother. And then he said, rebuke, all it is is it's not paying people back. That's not what rebuke is. And Luke 17 he says, go rebuke your brother and say, you've wronged me, so that he can repent and you can forgive him. Rebuke is not paying people back with harsh words. Rebuke is clarifying. Rebuke is saying, you've hurt me. For the purpose of relational restoration. For the purpose of regaining your friend. Regaining your brother or your sister. Regaining your husband or your wife. Or regaining your parent. And the longer you study the Bible's view of forgiveness, the more and more impossible it seems. Because it is calling victims to go and love the people who victimize them. Forgiveness is to accept pain and not need it out on them. Forgiveness is done for the love of the offender. Forgiveness seeks not just to clear accounts, but it seeks reconciliation, restored relationship, and mutual enjoyment. This is why it's such a common narrative in life that the older and older you get, the more and more alone you get. And why people on their deathbed typically are surrounded by very few people. It's because of our inability to really and enduringly forgive in this way. For the love of the other person. And so, you've got to begin to feel the impossibility of that. Because what this is calling all of us to right now And and I'm in college ministry, and one of the things I do in college ministry all the time is talk to you all about the people who piss you off, right? And everybody in here, me included, we can all immediately list the people who piss us off, right? For just reasons, right? Guys, that piss me so I love California. Can't say that in South Carolina. But you have just reasons, even. Not denying that your reasons are not just, but they infuriate you. 
And what Jesus is saying is, go seek them out. Go tell them what they've done so that you can regain them as a friend. You've got to feel the impossibility of that. If you don't feel the impossibility of that, you haven't encountered what I'm talking about yet. And then the, the, the question we close with is, what then gives us the capacity to do that? And the Bible has a very simple mechanism here. It's the point of this parable. It's the point of Colossians 3.13 and Ephesians 4.12. All the different places in the New Testament where forgiveness is articulated and called. And it's this. A forgiving heart stems from a forgiven heart. A forgiving heart stems from a forgiven heart. If you don't know forgiveness you will lack the capacity to really forgive in this kind of way, in this kind of powerful, gripping way. Especially in the way demonstrated here, a personal reconnection for the benefit and enjoyment of the offender. What this parable is not doing is it's not teaching that God's forgiveness is conditioned on how we forgive. Commentators virtually unanimously agree that doesn't square with what Jesus has been teaching all throughout But what Jesus' purpose is this. His purpose is to say, you've got to rest and receive the forgiveness of the king in order to be able to forgive. And if you lack the ability to forgive, you never really understood the forgiveness of the king. If you lack the ability to forgive, you've never really understood the forgiveness of the king because a forgiving heart comes from a forgiven heart. And there are two kinds of unforgiving hearts. There's two, different, there's two different kinds of unforgiving people. The first people are the people who think they don't need forgiveness. Right? Because they don't think there's anything wrong with them. They don't think they need forgiveness. And if you don't think you need forgiveness, then when somebody sins against you, what happens is in your mind you occupy the moral high ground. Right? I'm better than you. I've lived morally. I haven't sinned against people the way you've sinned against me. Therefore, my bitterness is justified. And you owe me. Right? My arrogance and my dismissiveness is justified because you and I, we are not alike. If you believe you don't need forgiveness, you find it very, very difficult to forgive anybody. But the other kind of people that find it very, very difficult to forgive people is the people who think they can't forgive, or the people who think their own sins are unforgivable. So there are those who think they don't need forgiveness, and then there are those who think they can't be forgiven. Right? And that's actually pride to believe you can't be forgiven. That my life is so jacked up, I really deserve what's coming for me, and nobody could really forgive me for, what's, for, for who I've been. Right? And I've, I've got to pay the price for my junk. If I'm just like, all right, I'm taking it. I'm going to, whatever's coming for me, I deserve it, and I'm going to take it. You know what that means? If you're like me and you got a lot of sin, you deserve it too. You deserve what's coming to you. As well. The one who who has the, the capacity to be able to forgive really comes from a deep reservoir of God's forgiveness already at work in your life. What gives us the capacity to begin to move towards powerful forgiveness that far surpasses the areas of little offense that happens, but has the potential actually to bring peace on communal levels in huge areas, the way we begin to be able to have that power is just the simple gospel. It's almost too simplistic. It's almost a little bit offensive. It's really this. 
we have to rehearse the simple gospel again and hear who God is and how he relates to his people. And that's what gives us the capacity and the humility to both believe we are someone in deep need of forgiveness, but also the trust that God is the kind of God that he can even forgive us. We have to rehearse the gospel again. The gospel is this. God is a creator. He made this world. It's his. And that means that all glory and worship is due to him. He made creation to flourish, and he gave a design to creation for its own flourishing. He intended for us in the world to be beautiful. And all sin is, is sin is this. We think we know better. Sin is we found other things to praise, other things to wrap our lives and our hearts around when we found other ways to live, and so we brought discord into the world. We sinned against God. When David, King David, um, sleeps with his neighbor's wife, gets her pregnant, and then has him killed so that they won't get caught. And he writes a prayer about that moment. And in that prayer is Psalm 51. And in that prayer, he prays to God, and he says these words. So he killed his neighbor, got, her wife, got his wife pregnant. And he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. David has really, really good theology because he gets this. If this is God's creation and we are God's creation, then actually when we sin against each other, the offense is to God. Because you're his creation. And to defraud you is really to dishonor the God that made you. That's why David says, really at the end of the day, God, this is between me and you. It's not even between me and my neighbor. It goes far beyond that. Our sin is against God. And then we got to see that God's response. His response is to pursue us and offer forgiveness. His response is actually not even to stand up in heaven and offer forgiveness. It is to come down into the world and do something. To actually pursue His people and offer forgiveness. He has to remain just. So He can't just pretend that sin didn't exist. He can't just pretend that we didn't incur a debt when we didn't give Him the honor and the glory and the respect that He's due. So what does He do? He sends His Son to absorb the justice, to absorb the suffering, to absorb the pain, to absorb the punishment at the cross. And it's His free gift to anybody who would take it. And His forgiveness is perfect forgiveness. We still struggle through it. This life will be a lifetime of figuring out how to do it. But His forgiveness is perfect. And His forgiveness means this. Take the definition of forgiveness and apply it to God as well. That God has given up His just right to demand recompense from you. So it means that God has forgiven His people. That God has given up His just right to demand recompense from you because He absorbed it Himself on the cross. See, Christianity has been horribly misconstrued as God rewards good people and punishes Bad people. That if you've done a reasonably moral job in life, then God will reward you, and He's going to get the people who have who've lived their life and kind of scored lower than a certain moral threshold. That's not Christianity. That's not the Bible. I don't know what that is, but that's not what's presented here. It doesn't give hope to anybody. And yet a lot of times that's the way we relate to God. That He still might get me. Right? If you accept... His forgiveness in the work of Jesus, God has given up His just right to demand recompense from you. Paul in Romans says this. It's worth repeating every day. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will never accuse you again. That's what it means when He forgives. Because He accepts this definition of forgiveness. He gives it to us. God will never accuse you again. God will never deal you your just deserts. 
God will never make an accusation again. That's what forgiveness is. In order for God to be just, He can't ever make an accusation against you again because in Jesus, He became our sin and endured the pain of our guilt at the cross. Justice was served. Justice has been served for our sins. Justice has been served for your sins. You know who's called the accuser of Christians? In the book of Revelation, there actually is a person who's called the accuser of Christians. It's actually Satan. And Satan goes around and calls those people who are forgiven. He accuses them and accuses them and accuses them for the purpose of causing us to doubt the forgiveness that we have. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. If you receive forgiveness in Jesus, there's no more punishment reserved for you. There can't be. And if you claim the gospel but you don't really understand it, your response is going to be, oh, if that means I'm really forgiven, and I can't, there's no more accusation for me from God, if you claim that, but you don't really understand it, your response will be, oh, so that means I can do whatever bad stuff I want. Right? But if on the other hand you actually get what forgiveness is, it's not simply a clearing of accounts, but it's actually God longing to reconnect with you, that He has done this for your sake so that you and Him can be reconnected and mutually enjoying each other, then what happens is the grace of forgiveness, it begins to also flow forth from your life. And so you realize that if I'm forgiven by God, the response is, now it's not, now I can do whatever I want. But rather the response is, all I want to do is whatever honors and glorifies God. The God who forgives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the stories Jesus has to offer us, dear God. And I pray that we would find forgiveness in you. And as we experience, we begin to find the capacity to be generous with forgiveness as well. In your name we pray. Amen.